Welcome, welcome, welcome. So, it'll be a busy one today. Um, got coronavirus updates, got election updates. Um, I got some breaking news right now that I will not actually jump into. I'll wait until the end of the show or, you know, second half of the show before I hit you with the immediate breaking news. So, we'll talk about that as well. Sit back, relax, get ready to be scared, annoyed, pissed off. I don't know, fill in the blank with whatever negative uh, emotions you, you'd you like. But we're going to lead it off. I'm not going to do the coronavirus update first and foremost. I'm going to do, um, do the election stuff first. So plenty of stuff to get to. Let me have a sip of my big seltzer bitch first. All right, here we go. Here we go. Ready? Let's do it. So we had some voting this week, despite the fact that there's a literal pandemic going on. Um, And, you know, before I get into the specifics of the election, let me just say what the DNC did here is unforgivable. And I'm not saying that because my candidate didn't do too well. I'm saying that because um, they, without a doubt, put people's health and well-being at risk. You had an election on the exact same day that the CDC said, originally the CDC said, hey, you can't have gatherings of 50 or more people. Okay, well, that's bad enough. You shouldn't have the election then. 
Then they changed it to 10. So the DNC and certain governors of certain states, Illinois, Arizona, and Florida, Tom Perez, these people were like, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and violate CDC guidelines and send people to vote in a pandemic. Now, why did they do it? The answer is very simple. The longer that this race goes on, the more debates we have between Bernie and Biden. Obviously, it makes Biden look worse and Bernie look better. And there were some polls that came out, national polls, that showed Bernie gaining five points, Biden losing five points, since it became one-on-one, effectively. And um, the DNC wanted to get this thing over with and drive a stake through Bernie's heart and move on. So they'd rather have people go vote in a pandemic than keep people safe. There's the same party that pretends it's the Republicans who are anti-science and we're pro-science. Well, you know what? You're right. Many of the Republicans are anti-science, climate change, some of them evolution, so on and so forth. But you are anti-science if you say, yeah, go vote in a pandemic and I think everything will be all right because we got some Clorox wipes in the corner. Shame on them for doing it. Absolutely shame on them for doing it. It's pathetic and uh, it's criminal because there will be more people who get sick now for sure and some percentage of them will die. And you could thank Tom Perez, you could thank the DNC, and you could thank the various governors like Ron DeSantis and J.B. Pritzker and uh, Doug Ducey, I think his name is, the governor of Arizona. Um, Thank all them because they did this. Remember, guys, that same day, a bunch of states postponed. I believe Georgia postponed, Kentucky postponed, Ohio postponed. They were like, we can't. What are you, nuts? Of course, there's a pandemic going on. What are you talking about? Of course we can't do it. In the case of Ohio, Ohio has a Republican governor. The Republican governor comes out and says, we're suspending or we're um, postponing the election. Then it goes to the court system, because technically it has to go to the court system in that situation. A Democratic judge goes, no, I disagree. You can't do that. And then it goes to the health department, and the health department says, Actually, yes, we can, and we're going to abide by the governor's order and not the court in this instance. So basically the governor was like, I will continue to appeal it through the court, and in the meantime, I am shutting down the polls. So the Ohio governor had to literally fight with a Democratic judge to say, no, you're not going to go vote in a pandemic where it's definitely going to spread more, and some people will get it, and some people will die. So really, I mean, if you weren't already fed up with the DNC and done with their shenanigans and their nonsense, you should be now. Because that's how little they care about you, the voter. They send you out to vote in a pandemic to hurry up and get it over with. Biden's leading. Let's get it over with, get it over with, get it over with. Okay, so um, the results were not good. Florida went to Biden with 62% of the vote. Um, Illinois went to Biden with 59%. Arizona went to Biden 43% to Bernie 32%. And then Bloomberg was 10%. I'm not sure how Bloomberg got 10. I guess there was early voting in that state, perhaps. That's my only guess. Um, Now, yesterday, there were rumors that uh, Bernie's dropping out. Bernie's team immediately slapped them down and said, we haven't made a decision on that front, so stop running with that. It's fake news. Um, Now, I'm happy that Bernie's staying in the race, and the reason I'm happy Bernie is staying in the race is because I know from personal experience back in 2016, voting for Bernie in the New York primary, Feels good. Feels good to go vote for somebody who agrees with you on the issues. It feels really, really good. You feel like you're participating in society in a way that's helpful. Um, 
I, I have nothing else to say about it other than it feels wonderful, and I'm sure many of you who have voted for him have had that feeling as well. You feel like you're trying to do your part to fix the country, help people, and um, steer the ship in the right direction. So I hope he stays in. I hope he stays in definitely at least until New York because that's my state. Now, our voting is supposed to happen late April, but it might be postponed because of the pandemic because this thing is roaring and it it shows no signs of stopping at the moment. Um, So I'm happy with Bernie's decision at this moment to stay in. We'll see what he does in in the near future. Now, we have to also at the same time look at this with clear eyes and a clear head. And the fact of the matter is, barring a major medical event for Joe Biden, um, the race is effectively over. And Bernie Sanders is uh, significantly behind. There really is no more path to him for the nomination. Now, again, that wouldn't stop me from going to vote for him because I know how good it feels. And I would recommend everybody else out there does the same thing. You know, when it comes to your state, if you haven't voted already, get out there and vote for him. Um, to not do it because of the state of the race, I think is silly because I've heard other people, this is like, it's like the opposite of the bandwagon effect that you see when, when somebody starts winning and then more people start hopping on that bandwagon. I think that's the dumbest thing ever because it's like, why are you, you, what are people voting for? Are you voting for a policy agenda or are you just, you know, saying I want to get along and I want to fit in. So I'm just going to hop on the bandwagon. And a lot of people hop on the bandwagon, and I think that's dumb. By the same token, I think saying, now I'm not going to bother going to vote because of the state of the race and my guy's down, I think that's silly. I think he still obviously wants and needs every vote, and plus it'll make you feel good, and you'll be doing your civic participation. So, again, I highly recommend you go vote. I'm going to go vote. Hopefully he's in by the time uh, he comes to my state. But barring some major medical event for Biden, there is no more path. There was a a fact that was going around that's not a fact. It was fake. People were saying, oh, by this point in the last race, after Super Tuesday 2, Obama was behind Hillary less than, or more than, I should say, Bernie was behind Biden. That's not true. People were circulating that and, you know, acting like, hey, this is why Bernie's still in okay shape. That's not true. (laughs) The, the, The fact is not a fact. It's made up. Uh, Obama was not, you know, more behind Hillary than Bernie was behind Biden after Super Tuesday, too. But let's talk about now. Here's the difficult part, guys. This is what we're going to do now. We're going to talk about what the Bernie campaign did right. And we're going to talk about what the Bernie campaign did wrong and just the race in general and how it unfolded. So let's start on a positive note. What did the Bernie campaign do right? Well, And a lot of people won't admit this on the left, but I think they're being silly if they don't admit this. Their strategy, right up until Super Tuesday, was basically flawless, given the state of the race. So I want to give a hell of a lot of credit, not only to Bernie, but also to um, Fashakir, who is Bernie's campaign manager, because he was driven by the data and he was very shrewd and clever, and he got us that big lead up until Super Tuesday. So there were a few instances where I wanted, even prior to Super Tuesday, hey, Bernie, you know, go harder at Biden, for example. And the campaign was like, nope, not going to do it. And it turns out, you ready for this? 
early on, they were correct at that time. They were correct. Early on, it would not have made sense for Bernie to go hard at Biden. Why? The campaign had very solid data that when Bernie does go hard at Biden, Bernie goes down. So early on, that the strategy that they were running was perfect. Why do I say that? We were winning and we were easily winning. But here's the problem. The plan was basically, hey, how do we get Bernie to have a solid 30% chunk of support in every single state? Okay, understand that? Very simple. We have a fractured field. We got a jillion candidates out there. So what do we need to win? Well, in a fractured field, Bernie's going to just need a plurality. This was their thinking. Okay, if he has the most votes, he's going to win. So they just need a plurality with, a, with over a dozen people running. Let's craft a strategy to get Bernie that solid 30% support in every state, and then he'll win. And as you saw in Iowa, in New Hampshire, and in Nevada, that strategy was working perfectly. I don't want to break anybody's heart here, but the race was ours. The race was ours. So that strategy the whole time of Bernie being Bernie, Bernie going out there doing his standard stump speech, repping his lane, arguing for his position, doing the same damn thing he did the last time around, that was working perfectly. Now here's the problem, and this is where we get into what went wrong. Bloody Monday happened. Bloody Monday absolutely, positively, 100%, without a doubt, changed the dynamics of this race. And what I mean by that is the establishment coalescing in retrospect was a mountain that was too tall for us to climb. Now, in the moment, even I was looking at what was happening. I was like, I don't know. This might not hurt Bernie because there's some data that shows that uh, most of Mayor Pete's supporters or the plurality of Mayor Pete's supporters would go to Bernie. He's number one on their list, so it, maybe it'll help him. So there was, a, there was a question mark, hey, this might actually end up helping us. But that turned out to be wrong, and that polling data turned out to be outdated. And what happened was Mayor Pete and Amy Klobuchar dropped out, endorsed Biden, They brought in Beto O'Rourke to also endorse Biden. Now, you might say, hold on, man. Beto's not popular, so it's not going to help him. Beto O'Rourke is popular in one place in the country, Texas, where he lives and where he ran and where he almost won and beat Ted Cruz. So that Beto endorsement could have given Biden a 3%, 4% bump that got him over the edge in Texas, a state that looked like like we were going to win. And... Obama, of course, facilitated the phone call, uh, the um, Bloody Monday and the endorsement and the big event that they did. So you didn't have Bernie versus Biden. You had Bernie versus Biden and Mayor Pete and Amy Klobuchar and Beto O'Rourke and Barack Obama. And the coalescing worked. The coalescing worked. Because all of those voters who were scattered all over the place with all those different candidates, they really did line up behind Biden. I'm sure many of them voted for Biden, and they don't even, they don't even necessarily like him. They're just like, I don't know, I guess him, because my guy dropped out and said him. All right. And 
On top of that, yes, Elizabeth Warren also effectively functioned as a spoiler. She siphoned just enough votes from Bernie on Super Tuesday where he ended up getting his clock cleaned. You know, there many experts say if Elizabeth Warren had just dropped out, not never mind, not drop out and endorse Bernie, just dropped out. If she did that on Super Tuesday, three or four more states would have went to Bernie. So that could have totally changed the nature of this race. And even given the Super Tuesday, you know, or I should say the Bloody Monday situation, which led to the Super Tuesday bloodbath, even in the scenario where Mayor Pete and Amy Klobuchar did the exact same thing with Biden, and if Warren dropped out, Bernie would still be in a much stronger position. So now, but here's the thing, guys. I don't want to make too many excuses because it's easy to say we would have won it if the dynamics didn't change. But the fact of the matter is the dynamics changed. And that's why immediately after Super Tuesday, you saw me come out here and, and lay out a strategy that I, I needed the Bernie campaign to follow because my perception of it is, and this is not a shot at Bernie, this is not a shot at Foz, but my perception of it is they didn't understand the colossal shift in the race and the momentum change. And they just thought like, okay, now we're down to one-on-one and that's a good thing. And we think we could beat Biden in a one-on-one race. But in my estimation, looking at how he ran post Super Tuesday, they didn't adjust their, their strategy at all. Bernie went right back to being the same old Bernie that he was all along, which got him to win Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada. But he was only running a strategy that was going to get him 30% chunks in each state. So you need to expand the coalition. And I didn't see a strategy that was built on expanding the coalition. I saw Bernie being Bernie and, frankly, being incapable of adjusting to the new reality. So what do I mean? Because it's easy for somebody who loves Bernie, like I do, to come across this video and say, yeah, okay, what do you know, Kyle? You're an armchair pontificator. I will say, listen, yes, I am Monday morning quarterbacking. And, you know, I say this with nothing but love and respect and devotion to Bernie and his team. But in my opinion, here's the strategy that could have definitely helped them and potentially kept us in the ballgame. First and foremost, Bernie needed to be better at the tit-for-tat establishment game. So what I mean by that is when you had Bloody Monday and all these centrists dropped out and endorsed, or I shouldn't even say centrists because I don't think they're centrists, neoliberals, they all dropped out and endorsed Biden. Um, If I was on the Bernie campaign, I would have done everything I can to to just blunt that media momentum that Biden was getting where they're, oh my God, isn't this wonderful? Oh my God, isn't this great? Oh my God, Biden's not the strongest candidate. Oh my God, look at this. Oh my God, Bernie's day is done. You needed to do your best to try to get Elizabeth Warren to drop out and endorse you. Offer her anything. I don't care. I'd go as far as offering her VP, and we'll deal with the consequences of that later. Andrew Yang, try to get him to endorse you. Um, Try to get Tom Steyer. Try to get Tulsi. Like, do anything you can. Also, try to get a couple normie Democratic endorsements, because post-Nevada, there's an argument you're the clear frontrunner So he could have shifted rhetoric to be like, I'm the man in this bitch. So I'm, you know, here's my olive branch to anybody who wants to be part of our movement. And 
it would have helped assuage the fears of many of the normie voters who rejected Bernie if there was a little bit of a more tit-for-tat, playing the establishment game, countering endorsements with endorsements. Now, that's the smallest piece of what he could have done, but I do think that would have helped blunt the, mo- the media momentum, which so helped Biden leading into Super Tuesday and Super Tuesday 2. The second thing is, okay, now, now is when you hammer Biden. Now is when you hammer him. I think the campaign was right to not do it early on and to keep their powder dry. Why do I say that? Because he was winning. He was winning, so by definition, his strategy was good. That's the whole point. If you can win, your strategy was successful. That's the way it works. So when he was winning, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and he wasn't going after Biden aggressively, okay, great. Keep doing that because it's working. The only reason you change to attack him is because now the dynamics have shifted in the race, and it's not a fractured field. You're not trying to get your 30%. Now you're mano a mano. You've got to take the guy down. You have no choice now. You have no choice. And I don't see him – I didn't see him do anything that wasn't already part of his playbook previously when they were going relatively soft on him. So what I mean by that is Zephyr Teachout compared – or didn't compare Biden. He said – she said, Biden's corrupt. And, you know, here, she wrote an article on it, gave all the details, all the specifics, explained how Biden's family has gotten rich off of Joe Biden. And, you know, he's a pay-to-play pay kind of guy. He's an old Washington wheeler and dealer. Not only did Bernie not run with that early on, he publicly apologized to Joe Biden, and he distanced himself from his own surrogate. Now, again, at the time, okay, it worked because this was before a lot of the voting happened and Bernie started winning. So I get the wisdom of the strategy at the time, but after the race changes and when it becomes one-on-one, you have no choice. Now you have to make the distinction. And I don't think the distinction's enough because it wasn't to just talk about the policy. You needed to say, no, 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 you don't get it. This guy is corrupt. This guy is corrupt. And most importantly, he's the kind of politician who played the same old Washington political game that led to Donald Trump being elected. It's the same old swamp things in Washington that led to Trump being elected. We don't go back to a pre-Trump situation to try to avoid Trump. We totally change the game. We totally change the kind of politics. We need somebody who's anti-establishment, not part of the establishment. And yes, He's corrupt. And I would go as far, and this is just me, but I would go as far as to bring up specific examples. I'd give the dollar amount. I'd say Joe Biden took X amount of money from the pharmaceutical industry. Joe Biden took X amount of money from the for-profit health insurance companies. It's no wonder he's against Medicare for all. He's bought by the industry. Instead, what Bernie does is he's so nice that he acts like, oh, it's just a difference of opinion. But that's not just a difference of opinion. That's also he's corrupt and he has the position he has because he's paid to have the position he has. So that's, that's an important point, is after the race shifted, you don't have an option. I know you like Joe. I know you're a nice guy. But it would be disrespectful to the working people who donate to you to not go after him aggressively, to not say, yes, in fact, he is corrupt. He is a swamp thing, and he led to Donald Trump. The next thing I would have done is, And they did a good job of this early on, but then they tapered off. Bernie needed to hammer electability. 
Now, early on, I remember I had a conversation with somebody in the campaign, and I actually was not early on a fan of the just make the electability argument um, point because I thought that was too too standard. There's no, no there there. It's just like, blah. It's like whatever. But no, the campaign said we're going to hammer electability. And I was wrong, and the campaign was right. This was early on because Bernie did hammer electability. He did it in a bunch of the debates, and then he skyrocketed on the issue of electability. And it, it got to the point where Bernie was leading over Biden on who can beat Trump. Well, after Super Tuesday, the polls immediately flipped and reverted. And you had Bernie at like 30%, and you had Biden at like 70% in electability. So I think that at that point, he had no choice but to go all in on I'm the electable candidate argument. But, and here's the problem, he wasn't making the argument in new ways. He wasn't making the argument in new ways. And what I would have advised the campaign to do is you have to connect the dots for people. You can't leave anything up to their imagination. And so for me, if I'm Bernie, I say Joe Biden is Hillary Clinton all over again. He's Hillary Clinton 2.0. We just ran this experiment in 2016. And the establishment safe option lost to Donald Trump. Don't make that same mistake again. Because in reality, I'm the safe option. I'm the one who's more electable against Trump. Look at my numbers with young people. Look at my numbers with independents. There's no way you're going to win a general election with this guy who cannot get the young to turn out in favor of him. He is Hillary Clinton. I am FDR. FDR got elected four times. Four times. You say... You you want to say he's not Hillary Clinton? Fine, then he's John Kerry. John Kerry, exact same situation. Safe option in 2004, lost to George W. Bush. After four years of George W. Bush, I would have kept repeating over and over, Joe Biden is Hillary Clinton. Joe Biden is Hillary Clinton. Joe Biden is Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton just lost. Hillary Clinton just lost. Hillary Clinton just lost. This just happened in 2016. You have to say it over and over and over and over and over To the point where, in the same way that um, Trump hammered home crooked Hillary, and everybody was like, yeah, that's who she is, crooked Hillary, it's got a stick where people go, Joe Biden, oh, right, like Hillary Clinton. It's got a stick like that. So I would have hammered electability, which they did early on. I think they didn't do as good of a job of it um, post-Bloody Monday and Super Tuesday. I would have not only made the electability argument, but you have to get clever with it, you have to get crafty with it, and I would have hammered home He's Hillary Clinton, I'm FDR. He's Hillary Clinton, I'm FDR. And then finally, and here's I think probably the most important point, and the thing that he did the least. I wanted Bernie, after Super Tuesday, to proudly embrace the label moderate and centrist. Now you're saying, well, hold on, Kyle, and I've seen this people reply to me on Twitter saying this every now and then. They're like, hey, man, but he's not that. Like, why would he say that? He's not that. Like, to say that he's not a leftist is crazy. And my response to them is, I don't actually respond to them, and I try to avoid Twitter mentions altogether. Like, I rarely see responses, but every now and then I do. Some of them came after me on this. If you look at the opinion polls, if you look at what the American people believe on the issues, Bernie Sanders represents their opinion the overwhelming majority of the time. Medicare for all, free college, a living wage, 
ending the wars, legalizing marijuana, raising taxes on Wall Street, all these beliefs, all these policies are super popular. So I wanted Bernie Sanders to make the case, well, hold on now. Not only am I the electable one, Joe's Hillary Clinton, I'm like FDR, Hillary Clinton just lost. You want to run that experiment again? But also, I'm the moderate one. I'm the centrist because I'm right smack dab in the center of mainstream American opinion. Now, every now and then, Bernie would do this line that's part of his stump speech. I'm not the radical. These ideas aren't radical. He says that. That's how he phrases it. These ideas aren't radical. Okay, good line, but what's the problem with it? The problem with it is you're saying what you're not. You're not saying what you are. You have to say what you are. I'm a centrist. I'm a moderate. That's what I am. Joe Biden, he's an extremist. I would have called him an extremist. Why? The Iraq war is pretty extreme. Hundreds of thousands of innocent people dead, cost trillions of dollars. We ordered torture to cover it up. The Iraq war is pretty extreme. Outsourcing deal, that's pretty extreme. He supported permanent normal trade relations with China, lost millions of jobs. He supported NAFTA. Pretty extreme. If you're a blue-collar worker in the middle of the country and you lost your job, that's pretty extreme if you ask me. Patriot Act. He supports unconstitutional spying on all Americans. That seems pretty extreme to me. That seems out there. That seems pretty extreme. So what Bernie needed to do was say, I'm the moderate, I'm the centrist, he's the extremist. Proudly embrace that label. Now, why, why, why? Because normally I say labels don't matter. Generally speaking, they don't matter because people don't know what they mean. But people perceive themselves, regardless of where they stand on the issues, almost everybody perceives themselves as a moderate. You might not because you're you know, up to your eyeballs in politics, you're a political junkie, not everybody is. People perceive themselves as a moderate. They think, like, what do you mean? My ideas are the common sense ideas. Okay, so play into that. And here's the, the trick that Bernie needed to do. He needed to thread a needle. He needed to thre- thread a needle. In this election, the turnout for older voters was through the roof. You actually had an increase in turnout for younger voters as well, but that increase was drowned out by the even bigger turnout among older voters. So... Bernie needed to thread the needle and find a way to not lose any of the young support that he was getting in overwhelming numbers. People under 44 years old, it was like over 70% have been supporting Bernie. So you have to find an argument, find a way to not depress turnout among the youth, but also increase turnout among the old for you or chip away at the giant number of older voters that are all going to Biden. And what I saw is post Super Tuesday, there was no adjusting in the strategy. There was like zero attempt to try to get the older demographic. It was just like a doubling down on an attempt to get the younger demographic. But at no point did the younger numbers eclipse the older numbers. So you're doubling down on the strategy that gets you your solid 30% in each state, but when it's one-on-one, you need 51%. So how do you make sure you keep that 30% or excuse me, you keep that young block coming out for you and not being depressed, not decreasing, but also you have to chip away at Biden's giant as big as Bernie was leading with young people, Biden's leading just as much with old people. So how do you chip away at those voters? Answer, very simple. Again, Most of those voters are saying, I'm voting solely on electability. I just want somebody who could beat Trump. 
So you had to win the argument that, no, I beat Trump. He doesn't. That's why you say he's like Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton just lost. He's Hillary Clinton. He's Hillary Clinton. You want to run this experiment again? You're going to lose to Trump. You got to vote for me. And what did Bernie do? In all the interviews after Super Tuesday, he was asked by reporters. He was asked by reporters. Do you think Joe Biden can beat Donald Trump? You know what his response was? I wish I was kidding, guys. He said yes. I knew from the second I saw that clip, we were in deep trouble and we were probably going to lose. Because what that clip showed me, and he said it multiple times, what that clip showed me is, oh, you don't get it. You don't get what you have to say to win. You don't get the colossal shift in the momentum of this race and that you're not, you're not in Kansas anymore, dog. This is a whole new ball game. And the new ball game requires new rules and a new strategy. Not you doing the same, you know, Bernie Sanders thing that you did before you got slaughtered. You just got slaughtered on Super Tuesday. Adjust! Adjust! So, again, I just want to run, it, uh, run through it for everybody really quickly. Um, what went wrong was Bernie's strategy didn't adjust post-Super Tuesday. Um, the establishment coalescing, in retrospect, really was a mountain that was too tall for us to climb. Partially, yes, you blame Bernie for not adjusting his strategy, but yeah, you can blame the, the establishment for their dirty tricks and their scheming behind closed doors and their backroom deals and Obama making the phone call and the media for pushing the narrative nonstop. The media is way more powerful than even I thought because their narrative worked. So that's thing number one. The establishment coalescing was just too much of a hill for us to climb. Bernie's campaign needed to play the establishment game better of tit for tat with endorsements and almost embracing that front-runner role. The next thing is, this is the third thing, I believe, he needed to hammer Biden on corruption and take the gloves off, say that, you know, Biden is the rot that led to Trump being elected. You have to be aggressive post-Super Tuesday. Pre-Super Tuesday, they were right to not be aggressive. Post-Super Tuesday, that's when you take the gloves off. And the the fourth and fifth things are the most important things, The fourth one was, again, hammer electability, compare Biden to Hillary, compare yourself to FDR, hammer that home really strongly so people really start thinking, no, maybe Biden isn't the most electable. Um, And then the fifth thing is proudly embrace the moderate and centrist label because you needed to chip away at that older demographic. And the only way that they would vote for you is if you convince them that you're a safe option, that you're not extreme, that you're not like a pie in the sky guy. And the way you do that is they agree with you on the policy, Bernie. So you could keep talking about the policies, but call it moderate and call it centrist. And then actually, I didn't didn't mention this. It's not one of the most important parts. But what I would have done if I was in Bernie's campaign, you farm out to other people who are affiliated with the campaign um, to question Joe Biden's cognitive situation. You don't have anybody in the campaign do it. Because then, you know, they oh, my God, how dare you? There would be a whole outcry from the media. But people who are sympathetic to the campaign, who are around the campaign, um, you know, who will deliver a message in a nuanced way, you don't have to say, oh, he's got severe cognitive decline. Like I can say on this show, but you have people raise questions, like Cory Booker did. Remember Cory Booker in, the, in one of the debates afterwards? He's like, sometimes you look at Biden and you just wonder. Is he all there? I don't know, man. You guys tell me. So I would have had some people related to the campaign do it because that, you know, I don't think a lot of people actually even really know that he's in a terrible situation cognitively. And if you raise that as an issue, it becomes an issue. So that's the other thing I would have done. But listen, 
at the end of the day, I know this is a long segment, but I think it's super important. At the end of the day, I don't want anybody to be too sad, to be too upset, because we were right there. We were right there. Guys, and I, and I mean this in all sincerity, if Bloody Monday didn't happen, we won! We won! Bernie would have gotten a plurality, and we would have won. Biden would have still been off in nowheresville. He needed, Biden needed everything to come together in the perfect storm for him to win. He needed all the king's horses and all the king's men to put him together again. He needed Mayor Pete and Amy Klobuchar to drop out and endorse him, Obama to make the phone call, get Beto on board too to try to win Texas. He needed Elizabeth Warren to stay in to siphon some votes from Bernie. He needed everything to come together perfectly in order to win. So it required all these tricks and these backroom deals. In other words, if the race was run in a fair way with no coordination between all the candidates, imagine we had some sort of rule. Like, yeah, if you're run president, you can't coordinate with other candidates, nothing like that. Okay, well, if that was the situation, Bernie won. He would have gotten a plurality and we would have won. So I don't want you to be too upset and too down on yourself because we're right there. We're right there. I think that the left needs to tweak its message a little bit. I think that there needs to be a focus on the bread and butter issues. You know, keep it simple. Focus on the universal programs that appeal to everybody, regardless of the demographic. Build, you know, a multiracial, multigender, multireligious, whatever you want to call it, diverse rainbow coalition of supporters, but build it on support for universal programs that help everybody. So keep it simple. Stick to the bread and butter issues. And I do think that despite what's happened in this race, they're panicking a hell of a lot more than you think they are. Right now, people on the left feel like, oh, my God, the establishment is such a juggernaut. And, you know, what are we going to do? We'll never win. We'll be permanently powerless. No, I disagree with that completely. Because just like that Hillary documentary that just came out, where Hillary's people behind the scenes in 2016, after Bernie won, I think it was New Hampshire, they said internally, oh, my God. Bernie's going to be the nominee. He's going to run away with this thing. So they're more scared of you than you think you're scary, if that makes sense. I know that's worded a little weird, (laughs) but we're almost there. We almost did it. And now we have a lot of grassroots energy, grassroots support, a lot of people around the country who see the agenda. They see the move. They see the way forward. There's going to be a lot of Bernie Sanders clones who now come up, run for office, get elected, and we can embrace that fact, and we can move forward knowing that we had a strong showing and that the future is bright. We just have to be a little bit more strategic, a little bit more intelligent, and make minor tweaks, and we're there. And, you know, the next point, somebody said this on Twitter, the next thing we could focus on if we really want to deliver a big blow to the establishment, uh, Shahid Batar. He's running, he's primarying Nancy Pelosi. And because um, uh, Marie Newman, Justice Democrat, beat Dan Lipinski. Dan Lipinski was the most conservative Democrat. Marie Newman, Justice Democrat, beat him. So that's a ray of sunshine. And if we get Shahid Batar to beat Nancy Pelosi, oh my God, that would be colossal. That would be so gigantic. That would be even bigger than um, Joe Crowley's defeat by AOC, because Nancy Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi, oh my God. Well, we got to take her down because she's the ultimate corporatist. 
and we have a real good progressive running against her, Shahid Batar. Everybody, please go donate, support him, whatever you can do. But, guys, it's not as bad as it feels. We're almost there. We're almost there. Keep fighting. Keep moving forward. Um, and also, the final, final thing I'll say is this. Listen, you do what you want in the general election. I'm on the record as to what I'm going to do. I will not be voting for Joseph Biden. I won't be voting for Trump. I won't be voting for Biden. I will not be voting. And the bottom line is because Biden does not represent me. He will fight for none of the issues I care deeply about. None of them. None of them. And I mean that. So the other thing that I think we should get smart about is embracing a strategy moving forward where we're more organized than we usually are and where we throw our weight around and where we say, hey, we're a force and we're not going anywhere and you're going to take us seriously or else. So that's the next phase. But, and I don't care what Bernie does because we all know that eventually Bernie will do what he did in 2016 and a lot of people won't like it and I understand not liking it. But then again, listen, Bernie's his own man. He's going to make his own mind up and I think he's, this is what he really believes. If he does what he did in 2016, I think it's what he really believes. Um, but I know what I'm doing. It, it will not be that. And um, we're a lot closer than you think we are, so don't be too down. We move forward. We get up. We dust ourselves off. Um, and eventually we win. Eventually we win. So it is what it is. Lick your wounds for now. And um, just know that with some minor tweaks and a few changes to Bloody Monday, and this race would have been entirely different. Okay, next. So I'm going to give you guys my perspective on Joe Biden and why it would be so immensely difficult for me to cast a vote for him, even in a general election. Um, so first of all, I'll say this, this is just going to be me speaking for me. If you happen to like what I'm saying and you want to co-sign it, by all means. If not, and you, know, you're, you disagree with me, that's totally fine too. I can't please everybody, especially in a situation like this, where there will be a strong divide um, on the left. So first of all, one of the reasons why it would be immensely difficult to vote for Joe Biden, even in a general election, is that how we got to this point where we are now is, in my opinion, inexcusable. And what I mean by that is the race was fractured. It was fractured from day one. It was looking like it'd be fractured through the whole thing. It was looking very similar to the 2016 Republican primary. And Joe Biden required help from all the king's horses and all the king's men of the establishment. He needed Barack Obama to make a phone call, get Amy Klobuchar and a defiant Mayor Pete to drop out for a promise of administration positions. So a corrupt, smoke-filled backroom deal. They also got Beto O'Rourke. They trotted him out there to endorse Biden, to help Biden in Texas. And it looks like that actually did help Biden in Texas. The one place Beto was liked is Texas. Um, 
And that coalescing of the establishment and all of the, you know, the behind-the-scenes movements and chess pieces moving into place, some people call that politics. And that's fine if that's your perception of politics, backroom deals. That's fine. My perception of politics is how do we help the people and how do we fix problems? How do we implement policies that help people? That's my idea of politics because I'm an outsider. I'm a simple man. I want to fix problems. I want to make this country better. If your idea of politics is backroom deals, okay, fine. It is what it is. But the fact that if the field stayed fractured, Bernie Sanders won this race. He won this race. That's something that I can't get over. I cannot get over the fact that the establishment coalesced, spit in the eye of their own damn base, their own Democratic base, progressive base, and now they're going to turn around and be like, why don't you go for our guy? Why don't you go crazy right here, bro? Trump's bad, bro. right here, bro. So they're disrespectful to the left. They compare us to Nazis, brown shirts. They've, you know, they compare us to authoritarian lovers, dictator lovers. They say we're, you know, pie in the sky, naive, stupid. They call us every bad name in the book. Bernie bros, sexist, racist, all that stuff. They call us every bad name in the book. They have to get together in smoke-filled back rooms to cut deals to prop up Biden's carcass. And then they're going to turn around and, just, and shame us if we don't fall in line for Biden. I'm not playing this game again, guys. We played this game in 2016. I told you guys, I'm in a safe state. I'm in New York, so I'm voting third party. But if, if I was in a swing state, I would suck it up and vote for Hillary. I'm not playing that game this time around. I'm not voting for Biden in New York. I wouldn't vote for Biden if I was in a swing state. And you could cry about that all day long, but that's the position that I'm taking because that's what I think is the most logical thing to do. So Bloody Monday was something that I couldn't forgive I couldn't get over. And also, Elizabeth Warren staying in to split the progressive vote as Biden had the the neoliberal establishment coalesced around him, that's another thing I can't get over. So that's one of the reasons why it'd be so difficult to cast a vote for Joe Biden in a general election. Also, keep it real, he has severe cognitive decline. You know, I like to think I'm a pretty reasonable dude. But I'm not going to vote for anybody with severe cognitive decline, and I'm also not going to vote for a war criminal. And I say he's a war criminal because he supported the war in Iraq, which killed hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians, and the Bush administration ordered torture to cover it up, and Biden was right there along with him every step of the way early on and defended his vote to the hilt. So I don't vote for war criminals. I don't vote for people with severe cognitive decline. Um, but on top of all this, Put all that aside, everything I said so far, because I actually agree with the people who would say, mm, you're putting too much of an onus on, you know, these things. I thought you say, Kyle, it's all about policy. So isn't policy the most important thing? To which I respond, yes, yes, it is. And that's another reason why I'm not doing it. So I've showed you guys this tweet before, but Joe Biden, this was off the top of my head one night, by the way. Joe Biden supported the Iraq War, NAFTA, PNTR with China, the Patriot Act. TPP, repeal of Glass-Steagall, war on drugs, Wall Street bailout, the Anti-Gay Defense of Marriage Act. He opposes legal weed, wealth tax, Medicare for all, free college, and canceling student debt. So, listen, 
again, I'm only speaking for myself here. But when I look at Joe Biden, I'm convinced he will fight for none of the policies I care about. None of them. None of them. If I was convinced Biden really cared about one or two of the issues I care deeply about and I thought he'd fight for them, I probably would suck it up and vote for him. Or at the very least, you'd hear me make the caveat, hey, I'm not voting for him in New York, but if I was in a swing state, I would vote for him. Another reason why it's so hard for me to even contemplate and consider the idea of supporting him is because I'm convinced on every single issue I care about, he's not on my side. He's not on my team. He won't fight for it. Guys, he was asked the day before Super Tuesday 2, I believe it was, oh, if Medicare for All got to your desk, namely it got through the House, it got through the Senate, all the work is done, bro. All the hard, all the hard work. Usually corporate Democrats say, yeah, if we were starting from scratch, but we can't get it through because it's too hard. Okay, the theoretical question is, you're granted that it's done already. It already passed the House. It already passed the Senate. What would you do if Medicare for All gets to your desk? And what was his response? He vetoed it. My dad is dead because we don't have Medicare for all. He very well could be alive today if we had Medicare for all. He didn't have insurance. He avoided going to the doctor for his back pain. He went to a freaking chiropractor instead to save money. It was a tumor. By the time he went to the emergency room, it was too late. He died very soon thereafter. So Joe Biden is saying, okay, under my administration, I would pursue policies that still have your dad die, Kyle. I'm going to make it so that there are 45,000 to 68,000 more versions of your dad out there. So you're okay with people dying because they don't have health care. Sorry. This is one of my top issues, Medicare for all, for obvious reasons. And if you're saying the work is done, it's on my desk, and I'll still veto it, then I don't know what you want me to tell you. I'm not going to freaking vote for you. This is like telling the Republican base I'm against tax cuts or I'm against the wall. Okay, so then don't be mad when they don't show up. You want to reach out to me, then freaking reach out to me on policy. That's what I care about. That's what the left cares about. That's what the left cares about. It was never about Bernie Sanders' personality. It was never about his looks or how politician-y he is. No, it was about the policy. So when you tell me I'm going to veto the bill you care most about, even if all the work is done, okay, then I'm not showing up for you. It's that simple. That was the straw that broke the camel's back with me, but I'm convinced he wouldn't fight for any of the issues that I care deeply about. So... Now, having said everything that I've said to this point, man, I get it. Donald Trump is genuinely really bad. Duh. Duh. That's the easy part. I would never vote for Trump in a million years. So I'm going to propose, I'm going to propose a deal with Joe Biden, his campaign, and with the establishment. So this way you can't turn around. I mean, they'll still do it, by the way. If Joe Biden loses, they'll still turn around and blame, you know, people like us. But I'm, I'm giving them an out. I'm giving them an option. I'm giving them an opportunity. If Joe Biden and the campaign wants my vote, and again, I'm only speaking for myself, but I assume some of you are going to be with me on this, but it's up to you. If Joe Biden wants my vote, he has to pick either Bernie Sanders or Nina Turner for vice president. Those are my conditions. Now, you might say, oh, you might think I'm being unreasonable because he's probably not going to pick them. You're right, he's probably not going to pick them. I think I'm being way too reasonable. Why? Because, again, I just told you, he's not going to fight for Medicare for All. He's not going to fight for free college. He's not going to fight for a living wage. He's not going to fight for ending the wars. He's not going to fight for legalizing marijuana. He's not going to fight for a Green New Deal. I could go down the list. He doesn't agree with me on anything. 
I'm a leftist. I'm a social democrat. He's a neoliberal corporatist. I don't agree with him. He doesn't agree with me. Why would I vote for him? Why would I vote for him? I wouldn't. I wouldn't vote for him. I'm giving them one last opportunity, one last out, not only to get me, but yes, there are going to be so many people on the left who agree with me. They say Joe Biden's out of bounds. I'm not going to vote. I'm staying home. I'm done playing this game. I'm done always compromising my values and voting for people who I don't, who don't agree with me at all. We're giving you an out. We're giving you an opportunity. We're giving you a chance to actually have a better shot at winning the election. Because you look at the poll numbers and it's crystal clear. There will be a decent number of people who stay home. Joe, you can't win. 80% of the youth vote went to Bernie. 70% of people under 44 went to Bernie. You think you're going to win the election without the young? It's not going to happen. And no amount of fake pandering now is going to change that. Whether you try to be cool and be with us on cultural stuff, rad, bro. Whether you do that or you pretend to support some of the policies that we know you don't support. We're not idiots. So I'm giving you an out. I'm giving you an opportunity. I will vote for Joe Biden if he picks Bernie Sanders or Nina Turner as VP. If he doesn't, I'm not going to vote for him. And you can piss off with all your crying and all your moaning and all oh my God, I'm going to blame you. I'm going to blame you. No, blame everybody who voted for Joe Biden in the primary because they assumed he was more electable against Trump and he's not. So blame yourself. Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. Not my fault. It's not anybody's fault. He's not going to vote for Joe Biden. It's on Joe Biden to earn those votes. I'm giving him a way to earn those votes. And honestly, this is the only way, in my opinion. Because we're not going to, we don't believe you that you're going to fight for any of the things we want you to fight for because we see your record. We see how bad it is. So I think I might even be too kind in proposing what I'm proposing here. If you pick Bernie Sanders or if you pick Nina Turner as vice president, I will vote for you. And I will advocate for you on this show. If you don't, I'm not going to do it. And it doesn't matter how much people want to shame me, it's not going to move me. Because they're not making logical arguments. All I've heard so far is, uh, but what about kids in cages? Barack Obama and Joe Biden put kids in cages as well. That's not my opinion, that's a fact. There was a photo that went viral of a kid in a cage, and people were like, oh my God, look at what Trump is doing. Turns out the photo was taken back when Obama and Biden were in the White House. So you can't, what about the kids in cages is not an argument, because Joe Biden and Barack Obama put the kids in cages as well. The other thing they say is, oh, my God, look at this. Kyle's a standard white bro, and he's privileged. If you look at the polling data on who is taking the position that I'm taking right now, it is overwhelmingly poor people and people of color. There was a great article, actually, I think it was in the New York Times, of black voters in a Milwaukee barbershop who did not vote for Hillary Clinton last time, and they didn't regret it. And they were like, why? Because she doesn't agree with me on stuff. She's not going to represent me. So, of course, I'm not going to vote for her. Why would I do that? Don't be silly. So, yes, you might try to pretend like checking out of the system is evil and wrong and terrible. No, checking out of the system is in itself a political position, and it's a statement, and it's a protest, and it's saying, okay, you want my vote? You got to earn it. Here are my conditions. Now, again, I'm giving you my conditions. He's not going to, Joe Biden's not going to fight for any of the issues I care deeply about, any of them. And I'm not going to believe him even if he pretends to start supporting those issues. It's going to be BS. So I'm being too kind in the first place, but I will vote for you if you pick Bernie Sanders as VP or Nina Turner as VP. Those are my conditions. Those are my conditions. So you like it, good. You don't, tough cookies, but that's what I'm proposing. And um, I have a petition on this. I'm going to leave it in the video description box. Please sign the petition. Please spread it around as much as possible. We're going to try to get a, a, so many people to sign this thing that it'll make your head spin. 
Um, and also, let me just say credit to uh, Jeremy Scahill for writing an article on this in The Intercept about how he proposes a unity ticket of Biden and, um, and Bernie. And he was like, rest in peace my mentions when he said it. So he, he kind of sparked the idea in my mind. And then I also added Nina Turner because Biden already said, I'm going to pick a female VP. Okay, fine, cool. You, you want to stay true to your word? Nina Turner. So those are my conditions. Um, you know, uh, if you don't meet them, it's on you. It's not on me. And I'm done compromising away all of my values, all of them, all of them. Am I clear enough? All of them. All of the issues I care most about, he ain't going to fight for, he doesn't agree with me on. So the natural thing is for me to not vote for that person. So I'm giving you an out here, don't say I didn't try. Okay. All right, let me take a break. When we come back, I still got a hell of a lot more stuff to get to. We're going to jump into the Rona. We got a lot to discuss with the Rona. Stay right there, y'all. We will be right back.
right, y'all. I'm back. Time to talk about the Rona. Time to talk about the Rona. Okay, here we go. Those first two segments were probably the longest in secular talk history. They were an hour, and it was just two segments, so that's not good. Not good. And now I got a huge segment coming up now, too. Huge segment. All right, let's go. Let me give everybody an update on the global health crisis and what's being done about it. So as of last night, here are the cases. We have 219,252 cases, official cases. Again, that's different from the true cases. Official and true are much different. Official is much lower because those are the ones we've tested for and can prove. The true number of cases is at least at least eight to ten times higher than that. Um, the number of deaths, 8,917, recovered, 83,982, unresolved, 126,353. Um, China has the outbreak relatively under control now. Um, there have been no new cases in Wuhan where it originated from. Italy is still struggling massively. Um, even with the lockdown, their numbers are going up, so that appears to be not good, although it could just be a lag in testing that explains that. Iran is in a terrible situation because, first of all, the numbers in Iran are significantly higher than what they're reporting right there. Um, second of all, the, the, the government was denying it for the longest time, um, and you still have people acting like there's not a pandemic sweeping through the country, and it looks like the um, hospitals can implode. And on top of all of that, the U.S. is sanctioning them and then also added new sanctions to them which is criminal, and more people will die as a result of it because they can't get many of the necessary um, medicines that they need. So it's a nightmare scenario in Iran. Spain, they're on lockdown, and you can see their case numbers there as well. If you look down at the United States, we have 8,872 uh, cases, 138 deaths, uh, 60 in serious condition, um, four in critical, nine recovered. Now, Listen, those numbers are way off for us because, again, we're so light on, test, on testing. We have so few tests. And I know that some people in my family are showing symptoms, and what they're told when they get in contact with a doctor is they describe their symptoms. By the way, the symptoms match perfectly with what this virus is. And they're told, I don't think you have it. What? If there's even a question, don't you want to test? The way it's working in a lot of other countries, like, um, I know in Scandinavia, in some places, they're doing chain testing. So if you show up, you have symptoms, they test you, and then they ask everybody who you've been in contact with for a week, and then they test those people too, and they quarantine everybody. You know, South Korea, similar situation. Taiwan and Singapore handled this probably better than anybody else. Their preparedness was great because they've dealt with outbreaks in the past, not of this virus, but of viruses in the past, and so they knew exactly what to do. Us, we didn't even do basic pandemic preparedness, guys. We didn't, have a ventilate, we didn't have the right number of ventilators. We didn't have the right number of masks. Our supply chains go to China. We don't have a good number of ICU beds. So we wasted trillions of dollars on wars, and we, don't, we didn't do basic preparedness for a pandemic. In China, the health officials are wearing basically hazmat suits dealing with the cases. Here, they just got, we just got those masks. So a lot of health professionals are getting sick here. So, again, not really, really, really not good. The numbers are really, really, really not good. Um, 
Now, what's Washington doing in response? Because this is where the story gets interesting. The cases are going to continue to skyrocket. In a world that made sense, we would have been on lockdown two weeks ago. The country would have been on lockdown two weeks ago. We would press pause on the stock market. We would send people emergency UBI and do a bunch of drastic measures up front. But they dragged their feet. But now, look at what's going on. So Vox says, what we know about uh, Congress's potential $1 trillion coronavirus stimulus package. Congress is eyeing direct payments to workers as well as aid for affected industries. Before the U.S. Senate has even passed the second coronavirus relief bill, it's already started working on a massive third stimulus package the Trump administration estimates could cost $1 trillion. It would be a massive injection of cash, surpassing the bank bailout in the midst of the 2008 recession into an economy that's seen cratering stocks, spikes in unemployment claims, and reduced consumer spending as the pandemic sweeps across the U.S., and perhaps surprisingly, there's relative bipartisan support, at least for the idea of a huge stimulus, if not yet for specific proposals. Lawmakers are referring to this as phase three of Congress's coronavirus response. Phase one was an $8.3 billion bill spurring coronavirus vaccine research and development. And phase two, once it's passed, will be an approximately $104 billion package largely focused on paid sick leave and unemployment benefits for workers and families. Three will be many times larger than both of the previous bills combined. Um, as Vox's Anna North reports, the latest version of the legislation, which the Senate will consider, excludes millions of workers from paid sick days and paid leave provisions. In the, in the most updated take on the bill, companies with 500 employees or more and companies with 50 employees or fewer can be exempted from, re from requirements to offer workers paid sick days. Hospitals and nursing homes can also be exempted under the bill. So that bill was terrible and is terrible because it's so weak. Only 20% of workers get paid sick leave. As a result, as many as 19 million workers could be left out of paid sick leave protections, according to the Washington Post. Despite its shortcomings, the bill provides a significant influx of funding on a couple of fronts. It would it will boost funding to states so they can expand their unemployment insurance benefits, and it guarantees free coronavirus testing for all Americans. Democrats want $400 billion for emergency hospital beds, for ventilators, masks, and other equipment, increased funding for senior citizens, public housing for those struggling to pay rent, protections for students impacted by school closures, public transportation relief, and investments in broadband internet. So, that's a lot of stuff that the Democrats say they want. Um, they want $350 billion to increase the social safety net, including expanded unemployment insurance with waived work requirements, automatic extensions for Medicaid if America falls into recession, which we are, a 15% benefit increase to SNAP, which is food stamps, and pausing monthly student uh, debt payments. Also, they want six months forbearance on all federally-backed mortgages, and a moratorium on evictions and foreclosures, expanding unemployment insurance to cover the gap on paid sick days. And, okay, so what we've talked about to this point, these are the, there are three bills. The first one was mostly for, you know, research to combat the pandemic and coronavirus. Um, 
It's for a vaccine. It's for treatments. Later in the show, I'll give you some updates on what we have in terms of treatments and, and studies that are coming out because the work is being done as quickly as possible, clearly. Um, and you do see some of what the Democrats are pitching for the third bill. You know, I just went through a list of some of the stuff they're pitching for a third bill um, for you there. But here's what else is in the third bill. And this is really interesting. So Jeff Stein says it's $50 billion for airlines, $150 billion in loans for severely distressed industries, $300 billion in business loan, in, in a business loan program matching six weeks of payroll at 100%, uh, which is with a cap of $1,540, government backstop of money markets. And the important thing to understand here is in this third bill, they want to add, they want to basically try to bail out the people. And they're only doing that because it is super necessary. Like, we are so screwed if we don't do some sort of a bailout of the people. Um, but also, they want to marry in the same bill bailouts of industries. So, the industries that are looking to be bailed out, you have this one's hilarious the movie industry, like theaters, um, airline industry, cruise ships. The casino industry has showed up hat in hand in Washington, um, and there are others too. So a bunch of industries are saying, hey, this is really impacting us bad, and we need a bailout, and we need an ASAP, and they're begging Washington. Also, there was the oil and gas industry. They were begging for a bailout as well, but that's not just tied to the pandemic. That's more tied to um, you know, what was happening with Saudi Arabia and Russia, but that's a longer story that we covered in a separate segment. But anyway... So everybody's asking for a bailout. Now, here's why they don't deserve it. Look at this from uh, Lee Fong. Boeing spent $43 billion on stock buybacks, helping more than double its stock price in 2017 and 2018, enriching shareholders only to melt down from its mass-produced faulty planes that crashed, by the way, and the current coronavirus crisis. Now they need a bailout? So, here's... Here's the deal, Jack. I sound like Biden. Here's the deal, Jack. Look here. Fact of the matter is, um, what would I do in, in this situation? Well, a lot of the ideas that are being floated for the people are actually pretty decent ideas. Talking about, you know, a moratorium on evictions and foreclosures for the duration of the crisis. Totally agree with that. Trump has signaled he's on board with that, although I don't know how far they're going to go. I, I'm guessing that a lot of these things are going to be watered down in the same way that the paid sick leave bill was watered down where it only applies to 20% of workers. So most workers would have to still go to work, which is insane in a pandemic. So I'm sure they're going to water it down in a million different ways. And when we get more information, you know, we will talk about it. But the idea of putting a freeze on essential payments, I totally agree with. I would put a freeze on, uh, you know, mortgage payment, rent, the, the necessary bills. And on top of freezing that, you also sh- should do a UBI payment, an emergency UBI payment to everybody. Now, we're actually having a conversation about that. And it's going to blow your mind because Trump and Mnuchin said in a press conference, we want to do a direct payment um, to the American people. Now, some Republicans are like, okay, a one-time payment of $1,000. Okay, that's not enough. Um, but what happened is, There are some Republicans and some Democrats who are like, yes, let's do a UBI for people, emergency UBI. Cory Booker, Sherrod Brown, 
Bernie Sanders come out and say $2,000 a month. You have some Republicans say $1,000 a month and 500 bucks per child. Um, and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer come out and say, no, we're against uh, UBI. Even Trump is in favor of UBI. He's calling for UBI. Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are coming out and going, nope, we don't like it. Um, we should probably means test it. Oh, sweet G. We have a crisis on our hands. You do understand by April 1st, people cannot pay their bills. You have to act now. You have to get the checks out now. There's no question. That's an absolute necessity. And you want to means test it? You want to give people paperwork to fill out in the middle of a pandemic? How dumb are you? Oh, my God. Paperwork in the middle of a pandemic. So now it appears like they're going to agree on some terrible middle-of-the-road Everybody making $75,000 a year or less gets $1,000, you know, $1,000 a month or something like that. No, you can't. You have to. Guys, I got news for you. A pandemic doesn't care what your income level is. So it's very possible that there's somebody out there making $90,000 a year, and that dude is going to get laid off because we're in a pandemic, and the economy is screeching to a halt, and he's going to get fired. He's going to get fired. So the dude... Maybe that dude doesn't have savings either. 78% of the country is living paycheck to paycheck. Even some people that have upper middle class income are living paycheck to paycheck. So if you say that dude does not qualify, I mean, come on, man. What are you? Emergency UBI right now, universal UBI, universal basic income, not means-tested basic income, emergency UBI right now. So I totally agree with that. I totally agree with halting you know, the necessary essential bills and payments. It looks like they're moving in that direction, but they're not moving quick enough. They got to go right now, right now, right now. But in terms of the, um, the industries asking for a bailout, no deal. Hell no. Hell no. And here's why. We've been through this. In 2008, we went through this. What do we do? The government rushed in. They said, oh my God, everybody shut your brain off. We have to bail them out. We have to do it now. For the people, yes. For the businesses, no. Because, okay, let's say you bail them out. Then what? Nobody, the economy is still frozen, and it's, it's not going anywhere. There's a pandemic. We're on lockdown virtually. So what are you going to do? You're going to bail them out, and then they're going to come back soon after and say, I need another bailout. Why? I don't know. I, you bailed out the movie industry, and still nobody showed up. What am I supposed to do? I was able to operate costs for another month, and then I went belly up. So how about you don't bail them out, and instead you do – emergency nationalization of these industries. That's what, that's what Spain just did with all their hospitals. That's what Spain just did with their, I believe their airlines too, although I could be wrong about that. But that's what I would do in this situation. Any industry that's coming hat in hand and saying we need to get bailed out, my response is, okay, if you want taxpayer money, then the taxpayers own you. Now this is temporarily nationalized. Now, the difference between me and some other lefties is, I, when I say temporary, I mean temporary. I think that you can do, you could have emergency provisions for temporary nationalization, and then, you know, when the time comes and the economy's healthier, you can hand it back off to private ownership. I'm not, you know, totally against all private ownership, full stop. But best case scenario, all these industries get temporarily nationalized because then, you know, you could basically shore them up for eternity because they're owned by the people. Okay, and you could handle people not showing up because you don't have to run a profit. It's, you know, the government is the owner of last resort, if you will. So that's what I would do. 
But I know Trump's not going to do that because the Democrats aren't in favor of that and the Republicans aren't in favor of that. The furthest they go is the government owning some share of the different companies. Um, But the absolute worst case scenario should be what Elizabeth Warren was proposing, which is, okay, if you get bailed out, here are the terms and conditions. And this is what we didn't do in 2008. In 2008, Bush and then Obama and Biden bailed out the big banks, and they didn't have any strings attached to it. And then what happened? These same companies that just crashed the world economy and made terrible decisions, um, the CEOs got bonuses. They got bonuses. So we need to make sure that doesn't happen again. There need to be rules. There need to be requirements. Okay, if you get a bailout, CEOs don't get a bonus for X amount of years. You know, if you get a bailout, stock buybacks are banned. You're not allowed to do any more stock buybacks, which don't help anybody and just artificially inflate your own stock price. You're not allowed to do that. You have to have an emergency funds. You have to have leveraging rules. Like there's so many things that you can do um, to ensure to safeguard from another crash. But what happened is in 2008, the government rushed in, bailed out Wall Street, and then Wall Street went right back to what they were doing before because it's called moral hazard. There, was, there were no consequences for their actions. And the lesson they took away was, hey, we could still be as reckless as possible. We could still be super risky. We could still over leverage. And if we ever go belly up, the government will save us. It'll be the same situation for these companies today that are asking for a bailout. So, again, the thing you should do is emergency bailout of the people, of the people, but when it comes to the industries, temporary nationalization. But worst case scenario is you do a bailout of these industries, but with strict rules associated with it to make sure this doesn't happen again. But honestly, I'm not a fan of even that. I would rather temporary national, temporarily nationalize them than anything else. Because even if you bail out, and even if you bail out with strict requirements, guys, the companies can still go belly up soon because they're not gonna, there's going to be no cash flow. The economy is grinding to a halt because it has to because we have a freaking pandemic. So I wouldn't do that. But, and, and here's what you're witnessing right now. All of a sudden, there's a crisis. Everybody's a socialist now. Everybody. Everybody. The Democrats are even less so than the Republicans, although some of their ideas are good, I should say. But, um, you know, Donald Trump and all of his advisors, these are all people who pretend to be hardcore free market people. And they're like, all right, everybody line up for bailouts. Lining up for bailouts, that's corporate socialism. That's what that is. Corporate socialism, also known as corporatism. So you're all corporatists. For me, I'm all about bailing out the people. And for the businesses, I think you should temporarily nationalize them until the economy fires back up and then you could give it back off to private ownership. So that's my take on the situation. There are good things and bad things coming out of Washington now. That first bill was total trash, doing paid sick leave for 20% of workers. You needed to do it for all workers. Um, And now the move is bail out the people in the industries. In my opinion, half the bill will probably be decent, the one that the part that bails out the people the other half of the bill, I'm, I'm bracing for terrible news on just how much money we're throwing at, at these companies um, and how it will probably be to no avail anyway. Just like the Fed was pumping trillions of dollars in the stock market over the course of a couple days, we're also witnessing um, a mess on that front too when it comes to these companies. So this is unlike anything I've ever seen in my life. I, I, you know, I was 
following politics very closely during the subprime mortgage crisis in the Great Recession, and I could safely say that that wasn't as crazy as what we're witnessing now with the pandemic and the stock market crash that's kind of similar to the 2009, um, or excuse me, 1929, I should say, Great Depression. Um, so buckle up, because it's going to get ugly, but I hope everybody out there is still social distancing. All right, next. So I have some good news for everybody. The Guardian reports, Japanese flu drug clearly effective in treating coronavirus, says China. Shares in Fujifilm Toyama Chemical, which developed Favipiravir, uh, surged after praise by Chinese officials uh, following clinical trials. Medical authorities in China have said a drug used in Japan to treat new strains of influenza appeared to be effective in coronavirus patients. Japanese media said on Wednesday, Zhang uh, Zinmin, an official at China's Science and Technology Ministry, said Favipiravir, uh, developed by a subsidiary of Fujifilm, had produced encouraging outcomes in clinical trials in Wuhan and Shenzhen involving 340 patients. It has a high degree of safety and is clearly effective in treatment, Zhang uh, told reporters on Tuesday. Patients who were given the medicine in Shenzhen turned negative for the virus after a median of four days after becoming positive, compared with a median of 11 days for those who were not treated with the drug, public broadcaster NHK said. In addition, x-rays confirmed improvements in lung condition in about 91% of the patients who were treated with favipiravir uh, compared to 62% of those without the drug. But but the Japanese health ministry uh, source suggested the drug was not as effective in people with more severe symptoms. We're given Avigan to 70 to 80 people, but it doesn't seem to work that well when the virus has already multiplied, the source told the Menichi Shimbun. The same limitations had been identified in studies involving coronavirus patients using a combination of the HIV antiretrovirals, lopinavir and ritonavir, 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 (laughs) I don't know how to say these names, the source added. In 2016, the Japanese government supplied favipiravir as an emergency aid to counter the Ebola virus outbreak in Guinea. Favipiravir would need government approval for for full-scale use on COVID-19 patients since it was originally intended to treat flu. All right, so here's here's the issue. Here's the issue. This drug works, but it only works with mild to moderate cases. For the most part, by the time people show up to the emergency room, they have severe cases. And at that point, the drugs don't work. That's quite a pickle. That's quite a conundrum. Um, you know, and then if people start showing up with mild to moderate symptoms at the hospital, the hospital would be so overrun so quickly that people wouldn't even be able to get the drug in time, I don't think. Um, or there wouldn't even be enough of it. But So the good news is, yes, we have something that treats it. The bad news is it's only for the mild to the moderate cases. 
Now, at the same time, there are other tests going on, and, um, you know, they're trying to develop a vaccine as soon as possible. I think they're already starting the trial for the vaccine, but experts say best-case scenario, it'll be a year uh, before we get a vaccine. Um, But it is good that there are some antiviral drugs that are having some positive effects. The other thing is there's been a story floating around about Cuba is claiming that a version of interferon um, that they're using works in fighting this virus, um, but we don't have any studies yet on that, and we we just have to take the word of the Cuban government for it. So, hey, listen, if I'm in one of these situations where I have it, yeah, I want to be one of the people in the test trials. Because I don't want to wait, (laughs) because the longer you wait, the more, you know, you develop the virus, and it it sucks. So I would, I'm happy that we have something that fights it, but it it definitely is a conundrum that it's only for mild to moderate cases. Um, So we got to throw everything we got at this thing, man. It's that simple. Scientists all around the world should be working together. Um, We should be studying that Cuban drug right now. We should be doing further studies on this drug, and we should also be trying to get a vaccine and also trying to get something that works um, even for severe cases. But it's kind of crazy that, you know, we're, we're caught flat-footed on something as basic as health because it's definitely in the case of the U.S., we spend trillions of dollars on wars, and then we didn't even do basic pandemic preparedness. We don't have enough masks. We don't have enough ventilators. We don't have enough ICU beds. I mean, we, we don't have tests. We don't have the freaking test, guys, the tests. I mean, come on. So, you know, I'll never forgive and I'll never forget that our government spent trillions of dollars for war and didn't even do basic pandemic preparedness when every expert has been telling us for the longest time, oh, we know a pandemic's coming. It's just a matter of when, not if. So it's inexcusable. But if I, uh, you know, was the president or if I was in the U.S. government, I would do everything I can to get my hands on even these these uh, antiviral drugs that are somewhat effective. Um, And I probably, not probably, I would definitely fast track it to get it into people's hands as soon as possible. So I guess this is some good news for the crisis, and we're not used to getting any good news, so I'll take it. Okay, next. So this is an important question that I'm sure many people are asking themselves, and it's something that's really scary to me, something that keeps me up at night. Just how much will the current health crisis destroy the economy? Now, you should also be worried about the health crisis itself. We're not like the idiots on CNBC here. I don't know if you saw that clip. I I don't think we covered it on the show, but... Rick Santelli, who was famous for kind of being one of the star founders of the Tea Party movement, his rant kind of launched it. But he was saying, um, you know, almost like the economy is more important than the health problem. And he thinks we should make it, infect everybody, infect everybody with the virus so that we don't tank the economy. Uh, what? That makes no sense. Um, but we have the health crisis and then another crisis of an economic crisis on top of the health crisis And look at how much it could impact the economy and already has. So this was in NPR. 
The coronavirus pandemic has already started to hit American pocketbooks, with nearly one in five households experiencing a layoff or reduction in work hours, according to a new NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll. As people stay home, avoid crowds, and cancel plans to avoid spreading the disease, it's rapidly causing a contraction in economic activity that is hurting a wide range of businesses. Restaurants, bars, hotels, and airlines are among the hardest-hit industries, but the ripple effects of the drop in demand are expected to spread across virtually the entire economy. As of March 13th to 14th, when the new poll was conducted, layoffs and reduced hours had already hit 18% of U.S. households. Wow, 18%. Lower-income workers were the most affected. A quarter of households making less than 50000 had experienced cut hours or job loss, even though, even, and even those who haven't lost work because of the, okay, that cuts off there. I don't see what it says. Lower income workers were the most affected. A quarter of households making less than $50,000 a year had experienced hour cuts or a job loss. So what we're looking at, guys, and if you think this, oh, it's just this one poll, maybe it's not that bad. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin said in an internal meeting with Republicans, we're looking at at least 20% unemployment. J.P. Morgan Chase released their estimates. They say the economy is going to contract by 4% in the first quarter, then 14% in the second quarter, and then they say, I don't know where they get this from, an 8% growth and then 4% growth in the third and fourth. That's not happening. Um, so we're looking at a situation where it's 20% of people, 20% of people, those are Great Depression-like numbers. That's what those are. Some people say as high as 35% of people. And you wonder why Washington is panicking. Listen, they wouldn't in a million years consider a proposal like universal basic income unless they absolutely, positively, 100%, without a doubt, had to. And so that's where we're at right now. They're looking at a situation where they feel like they have no choice. Because what happens on April 1st? 78% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. What happens on April 1st? If you have a situation where like 20% of people are unemployed, what happens on April 1st when it's time to pay rent? People can't pay it. People can't pay their rent. People can't pay their mortgage. People can't pay their light bill. People can't pay their water bill. So what are you going to do? Are you going to evict everybody? Well, no, because now they're talking about we need to do a temporary moratorium on all evictions and foreclosures, which, listen, if there was ever a time to do it, it's a freaking pandemic, and that's what we have right now. So this situation is seriously unlike anything I've ever seen. It's way worse than 2008 and 2009, where unemployment got, I think, to 10%, 12%, that range. That's the, I should be clear, that's the official unemployment rate. The actual unemployment rate, which I believe is called the U6 or U7 unemployment rate, which, you know, which is more accurate in reflecting the reality, um, you could basically double whatever the official rate is, and that's what the actual rate is. So, you know, when it's, when it's 3%, it's actually 6%. When it's 3.5%, it's actually 7%. During the subprime mortgage crisis in the Great Recession, the official unemployment rate was about 10%, so it was really like 20%. Now, if we see 20% unemployment, that means really you have like 40% unemployment, 
which is why the government's like, all right, we might have to cut the UBI checks, dog, because we don't have a choice. People got people to pay their bills. We got to give them a little something, something to get by. This is unprecedented. You could have the entire economy totally implode in the same way that the healthcare system is imploding right now because of the pandemic. So uh, not good, guys. Really, really not good. And again, this needs to be taken seriously and looked at the same way that we look at the 1929 stock market crash and Great Depression, because we are on pace to look at an economic situation like that on top of the health situation in the pandemic. All right, we move on. We move on to number, story number six. All right, this story is something else. So Republicans are trying to pawn off blame for the failure of our institutions to prevent the pandemic from spreading here. And the new trick is to call the virus Chinese virus. That's how Trump's referring to it. A lot of Republicans are in lockstep with him. So here's Trump and Senator Cornyn on this. And then I'm going to break down what about this is like very pernicious and bad. What part of it is fair? Um, and we'll dive into it after you see. Why do you keep calling this the Chinese virus? There are reports of dozens of incidents of bias against Chinese Americans in this country. Your own aide, Secretary Azar, says he does not use this term. He says ethnicity does not cause the virus. Why do you keep using this? A lot of people it's not racist at all, no, not at all. It comes from China. That's why. It comes from China. I want to be accurate. Yeah, please, John. Please. I, have great, I have great love uh, for all of the people from our country. But uh, as you know, China tried to say at one point, maybe they stopped now, that it was caused by American soldiers. That can't happen. It's not going to happen. Not as long as I'm president. Uh, it comes from China. Well, I think China is to blame because they're the culture where people eat bats and snakes and dogs and things like that. These viruses are transmitted from the animal to the people, and that's why China has been the source of a lot of these viruses, like SARS, like MERS, the swine flu, and now the coronavirus. So I think they have a fundamental problem, and I don't uh, object to geographically identifying where, where it's coming from. Asian Americans, Asian Americans are feeling like it is a racist thing. Oh, I, I disagree. Uh, I don't think uh, we're not talking about Asians. We're talking about. China where these viruses emanate from and which are created this, this pandemic. So to respond to uh, Senator Cornyn there, swine flu is from Mexico. MERS stands for Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome from the Middle East. It's not from China. Um, mad cow disease started in the UK and 
many people don't know this, but Spanish flu actually started in Kansas, started in the U.S. The reason it's called Spanish flu is because our media and our government was trying to suppress it and not report on it. Um, and at the same time, the only country whose press was reporting on it was Spain. Um, it was during World War One. I, I think they were neutral, and they were reporting on it. And so we, it's been called Spanish flu, but it started in the U.S. So in other words, the argument he's making is not true. The argument like, oh, these viruses come from China. That's not true. This one comes from China. Um, and yes, you absolutely can point it out because it's a fact. But let's talk about what they're doing here because it's not – they're not just trying to be, like, factually accurate. They're not just trying to be, like – scientifically correct. No. What they're doing here is, and Trump is the best example because he's so heavy-handed with it. What Trump is trying to do is pawn off blame and distract from the failures of our institutions and put all, all the blame on China. And that's why, guys, he's not even saying the coronavirus, which comes from Wuhan, or COVID-19 from China, because that, that's the actual name of the virus. The name of the virus is COVID-19. It's in the family of coronaviruses. Dropping the actual name of the virus to just call it Chinese virus. Why is he doing that? Again, to pawn off responsibility for the failure of our institutions. So in case you didn't know, Trump fired our pandemic experts in 2018, cut the CDC, cut Health and Human Services. Um, we didn't have the proper number of ventilators for a pandemic. We didn't have the proper number of masks for a pandemic. We don't have the proper number of tests for a pandemic. We don't have the proper number of ICU beds for a pandemic. He downplayed the virus immediately upon the stories of the first couple of cases being here in the U.S. and compared it just to the regular flu and said there's nothing to really worry about. And dragged his feet, dragged his feet, dragged his feet, and then finally when it exploded and he had to take it seriously, then now he's pretending to play Mr. Serious. So he knows it's bad. He sees what's happening, and he can't take full responsibility and say, we should have been prepared. We should have acted differently. So what does he do? Just Chinese virus, Chinese, 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 Chinese. And just so you know, this actually is coinciding with a, a spike in crimes against Asian Americans, and they are being scapegoated, and it's a shame. If people you know, look at them like, oh, my God, you must have it. You're Chinese, which I know is stupid. But remember, in this country, it was something like 30% of Americans said, I'm not even going to have a corona beer because of the coronavirus. What? <laughs> Those things aren't connected at all. What are you talking about? So that's why what they're doing is BS. I'm not like other people who get maybe a little too oversensitive on this, where they say, you're not even allowed to bring up where the virus originated. That's not fair. No, it, you totally are allowed to bring that up. That's accurate. That's factual. So you can talk about the origins of it. The origins are what's called, yes, a wet market in China where they have all these exotic wild animals and they're all in cages next to each other and it's ripe for spreading diseases. So you can talk about that. But to say like what Cornyn said there, where it's like, this only happens in China, that's just factually wrong. And if you think those practices are bad, wait till you get a load of factory farming, which happens here in the United States. It's really hard to sit there and cast judgment on the wet markets in China which, by the way, I do cast judgment on it, but we also have the factory farming, and I also cast judgment on that. And you should cast judgment on that, because that's bad. What, you think, you know, oh, we eat cows and, and pigs, and somehow that's not, like, 
weird, bad, gross, but it is when you eat other animals. Like, I don't know if you guys know this, but a pig's IQ is similar to that of a dog. You know, it's not like he thinks, and you can tell they think this, that, like, there's something that's inherently reasonable, rational, and civilized about the kind of things we eat versus how they eat. It's just, it's a stretch. It's a stretch. And, of course, you could tell he has no idea what he's talking about when he tries to say SARS and MERS and all these. They, they all come from China. Actually, MERS, like I said, from the Middle East. I'll give you the list again. Swine flu is Mexico. MERS is from the Middle East. Mad cow started in the U.K. And Spanish flu started in the U.S. <laughs> so, no, a virus is a virus is a virus. A pandemic is a pandemic is a pandemic. And um, I don't really care where it started. I care about us stopping it. And the way we stop it is to take responsibility and to do everything we can from a health perspective, from a safety perspective, from a preparedness perspective. And we simply didn't do that. And that's why Trump has now gone all in on Chinese virus, Chinese virus, Chinese virus, Chinese virus. The criticism I do have of the Chinese government, though, and this is a totally fair criticism, is it is true that there were mem- there was some, I don't know what a, the, his title was, communications director or something in the, in the Chinese government who was trying to say the U.S. started this. That's nonsense. Um, and th- so they are doing propaganda. And also there were reports that when this virus initially started all the way back in December, there, was, there were doctors who were blowing the whistle on it, and the Chinese government tried to shut them up, tried to shut up the doctor and doctors, um, as opposed to dealing with the health, health crisis. So they didn't do containment up front, and then when it got out of hand, then they contained it and went on total lockdown. And as a result of that, yes, it ended up spreading all around the world. So, but again, you can blame that action, and I do, and you should, but let's stop pretending like our response has been better. Trump effectively did the same thing when he's out there, you know, talking about, um, oh, this is just like the flu. This is not serious. It literally took Tucker Carlson flying to Mar-a-Lago to meet with Trump at a place where people all had the coronavirus. It took Tucker Carlson going there and saying, dude, this isn't a Democratic hoax. This is serious and you need to take it seriously. So, you know, it's too heavy handed. Don't the Chinese virus. No. You want to say it's COVID-19. It's coronavirus. Yes. You want to say hey, it did originate in China. That's a fact. That's fine, too. You want to say, hey, they're blaming American soldiers. That's not okay. That's fine, too. But when you try to pretend like viruses only come from there, that's BS. And when you try to just call it Chinese virus, yes, you're scapegoating. And that it does have negative consequences. And one of those consequences is there has been an uptick in, you know, crimes against uh, Asian Americans as a result of it. So here we are again. Um, the president and the Republicans really trying everything they can from a marketing perspective to pawn off responsibility for their abysmal failure at governing. All right, next. If you want to see how broken and cruel our system is. Look no further than this story from Common Dreams. And actually, that's not fair. I shouldn't call it our system because this really has nothing to do with us. This has to do with, honestly, capitalism and intellectual property rights. Let me start that over. If you want to see how broken and cruel the global system is right now and capitalism and property rights, if you want to see how bad 
this gets when it's taken to its logical conclusion? Look no further than this story coming out of Common Dreams. Italians found a way to 3D print key ventil- a key ventilator piece for $1 to help battle the coronavirus. So the company with the patent is threatening to sue. There were people whose lives were in danger, and we acted, period. That's a you know, quote from one of the people who did this, who took this action. So this was, quote, even as the printed valves saved at least 10 people's lives in a hospital in the northern Italian city of Brescia. So even as this valve that they 3D printed was saving lives, the company was like, no, you can't do that. Stop it. And they say, oh, we charge $11,000 per piece for the device. And we refuse to share the technical specifications of it to produce the valve. And it's a lawsuit for patent infringement. In the middle of a pandemic where people are dying and these masks need this key component And the company, by the way, the reason they did it, the company wasn't responsive or they took a long time to respond. And they're like, hey, dog, we got a pandemic over here. So they just they took a shot in the dark with the 3D printer to try to get the specifications right. And they say they did get it, but apparently they're afraid to wash it because of the material it's made with, with the 3D printer. And they they have three different versions of the piece that they're kind of doing trial and error with to see which one works better. So they're still ironing it out, but they're doing it because of a pandemic. They have to do it. And the company's like, no, we're going to sue you. If they didn't do it, people would have died, bro. People would have died. They need this. The company doesn't care because the company is only concerned with their own profits, their bottom line. And listen, I mean, the takeaway from this is very simple. There are certain things that do not belong in the capitalist system. There are certain things where the profit margin should not exist, and I would go as far as to say it's immoral and unethical for the profit margin to exist on certain fronts. And I find it hard to believe that anybody would disagree on this one because this is as evil, cruel, wrong, bad as it gets. And even some hardcore right-wingers out there could see how negative this is, how terrible this is, and the impact it would have had. I think it's time we start changing how we do stuff, guys. I really do. I really do. Not only should we have, you know, Medicare for all, single-payer system, but I also think almost everything surrounding health should be nationalized. You know, like Big Pharma and all their medications. I don't see a good argument against nationalizing that, especially because a lot of the drugs that Big Pharma profits off of the research and development is done in universities, public institutions. So I don't see a good argument to allow that to continue to be private, whether it's big pharma or medical devices or Medicare for all system, like everything involving health, it just strikes me as too important to to be in the capitalist system. And that's not me saying everything should be out of the capitalist system because you guys know I don't believe that. You guys know I think that in some instances competition breeds Uh, better outcomes, lower prices, consumer goods, video games, cars, fill in the blank. Like that, I get it for that front. But anything involving health, I think you're out of your mind if you think that, you know, the profit margin or the profit motive 
um, handles these issues well. It doesn't, if you have the profit motive involved in anything regarding health, the incentive structure is too perverse. And this is a clear example of it here. All right, now I'm going to show you the video that um, I'm going to show you the video that Trump does not want you to see. Trump was asked if he takes responsibility for the pandemic since he fired the pandemic experts in 2018, and um, it didn't go well. This video is from a week or so ago, maybe a week and a half ago. Uh, and then you're going to see also a video from all the way back in 2018 when he's answering questions about firing the pandemic experts. Responsibility, but you did disband the White House pandemic office, and the officials that worked in that office said that you that the White House lost valuable time because that office was disbanded. What do you make of that? Well, I just think it's a nasty question. Uh, and when you say me, I didn't do it, and then you say you say we did that. I don't know anything about it. Consistently called for enormous cuts to CDC, the NIH, and the WHO. You've talked a lot today about how these professionals are excellent, how they're critical and necessary. can increase staff. We know all the people. We know all the good people. It was a question I asked the doctors before. Uh, some of the people we cut, they haven't been used for many, many years. And if we, they, if we have a need, we can get them very quickly. And rather than spending the money, and I'm a business person, I don't like having thousands of people around when you don't need them. When we need them, we can get them back very quickly. Yeah, it turns out that pandemic experts are people who should never have been laid off because they could have done this very important thing called preparedness. If there were pandemic experts there, my guess is, you know, some of their recommendations would have been, hey, we don't have enough ventilators if we have a crisis. Hey, we don't have enough masks if we have a crisis. Hey, we don't have enough ICU beds, and we need contingency plans for makeshift hospitals that we could you know, kind of make immediately in, in the case that we need them. So, you know, pandemic experts, this is their job. Their job is to keep their eye on what's going on, you know, hey, what's happening with uh, the coronavirus when it initially broke out in China? Okay, is it spreading? Oh, boy, it's spreading. And then they make recommendations, and, like, they're on top of it. That's what they do. So to fire them means Trump Trump was gambling on there not being a pandemic while he's president. That's what it was. That was a, it was a gamble. Oh, okay, there probably won't be a pandemic while I'm president. We haven't had one for a while. But it turns out not having one for a while was more of an argument for we will probably get one soon. Because, you know, I think they said about every 20 years, every 20 years, there's a pandemic. There's, you know, and, and it's different levels. You know, I don't know if they're including, you know, swine flu, which had a relatively lower death rate than previous pandemics like the Spanish flu. 
Um, but this is what experts say, and apparently we were overdue for a bad one, and, um, well, here we are. And the problem is he doesn't believe in good government. He doesn't believe in, uh, he doesn't believe in health and human services and Centers for Disease Control, and that's why he cut their budget, because this is, you know, this is Republican 101. I'm going to massively, massively build up defense defense, even though we don't need it. It's bloated, unnecessary military budget, which is nothing but corporate socialism, a.k.a. corporatism, for Raytheon and Boeing and Honeywell and Halliburton and KBR. And, you know, hey, let's give all the money to the defense contractors and Wall Street and everything else gets cut. Social safety net gets cut. Um, Our important government agencies that do vital work like pandemic preparedness, they get cut. And here we are. And it doesn't help also that early on Trump was out there, you know, saying, doing his normal Trump thing and doing the counter narrative. And when people were saying, hey, man, this might be a real serious thing, he was like, no, it's just like the flu. It's no big deal. It'll go away with the hot weather, so on and so forth. Oh, boy. So, uh, you know, here we are. But at least now you see the video. He was asked a question about that, and uh, he gave a typical Trump answer. You know, I'm a business guy. I don't like seeing... I don't like seeing people just standing around doing nothing, and so I fired him. And if we ever need him, we get him back. Well, you got him back when it was too late and we weren't prepared for the current pandemic. Okay. We're going to talk about Fox News and their coverage of the pandemic and just how bad it's been. Fox News coverage of the coronavirus has been terrible, uh, which is unsurprising. But they recently did a complete 180, and they're contradicting themselves at record speed. This is yet another attempt to impeach the president. And sadly, it seems they care very little for any of the destruction they are leaving in their wake. We must test for the virus in order to stop the spread of it, what could be a very great recession, some predicting even a depression. At worst, worst case scenario, it could be the flu. I feel like the more I learn about this, the less there is to worry about. I was about to say the same thing. We don't have immunity to this virus. It's a new virus. It's a pandemic strain of a virus we haven't seen before. All the talk about coronavirus being so much more deadly doesn't reflect reality. Without a vaccine, the flu would be far more deadly. We are facing an incredibly contagious and dangerous virus that is moving across the world from one hotspot to another. We're going to call out anyone and everyone who's using this virus as a political weapon against the president. The standard flu every single year kills tens of thousands of Americans. We are now entering what will be the crucial defining 15-day period as as it relates to this virus where we must slow the spread of coronavirus. It's actually the safest time to fly. Everyone I know that's flying right now, terminals are pretty much dead. We have a responsibility to slow down this virus and to think of other people during this time. And so if you can keep your distance and prevent someone from getting close to you that might be sick, you can save your family, you can save the elderly, and help our country as a nation. It is absolutely disgusting that Democrats are seeking to use this complex virus to score cheap political points. This dangerous health crisis could dovetail quickly 
into a political crisis, already feeling economic ramifications of it all. So you're probably wondering, well, how the hell, like why, how, how did this happen? What are they doing? They are Trump sycophants. They take their, their cues from the White House. So when, when Trump's out there saying it's just like the flu, it's no big deal, it'll be in and out with the warm weather, the number of people who die from the regular flu is way higher than the coronavirus, this really is nothing. When he's out there saying that, they're like, okay, got it. I got my marching orders. And then they all go out on their respective shows and they're like, they say the same thing. And they blame them all day long. It was blame Democrats, blame Democrats, blame Democrats. This is a Democratic hoax. They love to compare the Mueller report, Russiagate, and impeachment to this. I'm somebody who was super critical of the Democrats on the Mueller report, Russiagate, and impeachment. And I realized immediately that the coronavirus thing is serious. It's real. It's not like, it's a pandemic. It's not you know, okay, some Democrats are going to use it to say, hey, man, you're doing a bad job, Trump. But that's true. He was doing a bad job. Like, they're correct in saying that. They're right. It's not like every argument ever made by any Democrat ever is wrong and comes from a place of just anti-Trump animus and hatred. Sometimes they're correct. And this is an instance where they're correct. And Trump was not ready. And being concerned about a pandemic is perfectly reasonable, especially since we see the evidence of how it's impacting other countries and it spread to other countries before it got here. We're seeing the impacts of it. We're seeing how it unfolds. We're seeing how deadly it is. The idea that we're like, hey, man, it's serious. It's here now. And they go, aha, just trying to get Trump. No, I'm trying to not have a pandemic spread more. That's what I'm trying to do. So um, they're so shameless. They're so shameless and they're so bad at their jobs. All they do is fall in line and parrot whatever line the White House is going with. And it's really interesting seeing them flip-flop all over the place because they have no real beliefs. I'm going to show you another segment in a little bit that's going to surprise the hell out of you. But now that the White House is all in on all these bailouts, corporate socialism, corporatism, now all the people who were free market fundamentalists Yes, rugged individualism. All those people are now like, great, let's do some more bailouts. All of a sudden, they're corporate socialists. They're corporatists. So they have no principles. They have no beliefs. And if I could impress upon you anything watching this show, it's for the love of God, believe something, research Know what you believe. Know the policies you support. I don't care if you agree with me or disagree with me, but at least I have respect for the people who are consistent. At least I have respect for the Ron Paul type person who's like, no, I'm a libertarian and I mean it, and if a business fails, tough cookies, you fail. See, Ron Paul doesn't believe in the entitlement programs and welfare for regular people, but he also doesn't believe in welfare for corporations, so he's consistent. The Republicans are just, you know, all over the fucking place. I don't know, whatever, whatever. I don't don't care. What What do we believe today? Are we going to flip it tomorrow? Probably, but let's just do whatever. It doesn't matter. I'm not, I don't care about consistency. I don't care about ideology. I don't care about principles. So that's Fox News for you. Nobody should take them seriously. Okay, now... 
I got one more on Fox for you. What you're about to see here is out of this world. Fox News is now in favor of universal basic income. For the health of people, then of course we have to do everything to help for their economic health on the other side. Weren't were we making fun of this, though, when Andrew Yang suggested something like it with socialism? No. Uh, well, no. When he was saying send $1,000 to everyone. No, I mean, there are people who think that universal base income is actually a pretty good idea. I don't think of it as necessary socialism, especially if you look at it that in Alaska, how they get back money. But there will be plenty of time to figure it out. But to take point, $1,000 for people who really – they're going to need yeah. more than that. I agree. Greg. I just did this rant, but I'm going to do it again. <laughs> they don't believe in anything. 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 Okay. In this instance, great. They're, they now support a policy that's perfectly reasonable and a policy that I support wholeheartedly. Wonderful. Great. But, man, is it sad to have no core. They don't have a core. They believe in nothing. It's just they, whatever. What is, what's the White House saying? I'm a sycophant. Yeah, I'll say whatever they said. Me too. I'm, I'm with them. So, you know, hey, man, it's really weird because we live in a political situation now where if Donald Trump came out tomorrow and started pushing for Medicare for all because we need it because of the virus, and as somebody was saying on uh, social media, if the Republicans did it and called it like Patriot Care or something, all of a sudden the right would be in favor of it and we might get it, that really is what could happen. And it's just so sad to watch these dishonest actors on the right and the left immediately abandon everything that they're supposed to believe in because, you know, of political expediency and convenience and sheer partisan stupidity. Like, and, you know, I get a lot of crap for it, and I'm sure you guys do too, because if you actually believe in what you're talking about and you stay true to your principles, sometimes that means you go after people who, you, you know, you'd otherwise agree with on a lot of stuff. When I would go after Obama all the time when he was president, it's like, you know, Democratic president has done some good things, but when he does bad things, I'm going to call it out because I care more about the issues than I do about the person. And this is an instance of, oh, okay, so now that Trump is the one calling for UBI and Steve Mnuchin in the administration is calling for it and Mitt Romney's now in favor of it and Tom Cotton was calling for it, oh, this is now a totally reasonable idea. You, I guarantee you, if you looked hard enough, you could dig up video of them saying that Andrew Yang is, oh, socialism, offering everybody free money. Oh, you think money's free? You think it grows on trees, bro? You think we can, how are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for it? That's all they got. They, when it's somebody else, when it's the other team, it's so stupid, dumb idea. I'm not going to evaluate it independently. I'm just going to say that they're bad because they're on the other team. When it's their team, oh, I think it's a good idea, and many people think it's a good idea, and I don't know if $1,000 is enough. Okay, listen, take it when they happen to be right, and now they happen to be right. But just understand, nothing they ever say should be taken seriously because they believe in nothing, they research nothing, they read nothing. They're just like, you know... They're just back and forth in the wind. Oh, where am I going today? I don't know. What's Trump doing? That's awesome. Oh, what are the Democrats doing? That's bad. 
pathetic and like a child. All right. Now... Now, 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 we will go to Bernard. Bernard Sanders. So I have an awesome video here that I think you're going to appreciate. Bernie was asked yesterday in D.C. if he'll drop out um, because, you know, he didn't do too well in the previous election. And so now pressure is mounting among establishment types. They're, you know, basically hinting like, come on, bro, get out. What are you doing? And uh, Bernie was fed up, and here's what happened. Absolute dad. So, uh, yeah, I like it. And I hate to say this, but I think there's a decent chance that if he let that freak flag fly a little bit more uh, during the campaign, maybe we'd be in a different situation right now. Can't, can't say that for sure. You don't know. And, um, again, Bloody Monday was really the turning point, and it was such a hard mountain to climb when the entire establishment coalesced against him. But, um, yeah, I do get the sense that the 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 burn the standard Bernie like who Bernie is as a person is really likable, like that's likable that's relatable because a lot of people out there agree you're asking stupid questions about horse race politics who cares right now there's a global economic meltdown the stock market is plummeting people are losing their jobs right now and we have a pandemic so I'm a little busy at the moment if you don't mind. That's the kind of Bernie, like we all know Bernie's actually kind of obsessed with the political issues and trying to solve problems. And when he lets everybody know, like, okay, you're in my way and you're being stupid, if he was more aggressive against the media, yeah, I think, I think that things could have been different. Um, but again, we'll never know for sure. And it could have been that Bloody Monday was just too much for us to overcome no matter what he did. Um, but I love it. And I want to see more of that. And I want to see it all the time. And I want to see it not just from Bernie. I want to see it from the left in general. And let the centrists cry. They're not real centrists. They're neoliberal corporatists. Let them cry. Let them cry all day long. Let the media cry. Whatever. Um, I think this makes him look good. And I think it would make anybody look good. Because it looks like he's serious. He's the dad who's trying to take care of the situation. And then you got the annoying kids pestering him. And he's like, shut, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. Shut up. I'm, I'm, I'm the adult here. Let me take care of what I got to take care of. What are you doing? So I like it. I'd like to see a lot more of that, and not just from Bernie, from everybody on the left, because um, it's time. The time has come for us to throw around our weight and for us to try to dictate the terms of the discussion. All right, let me do one more here. This one is a semi-breaking story. 
and it will be um, Tulsi Gabbard. So Tulsi Gabbard just announced that she's dropping out of the race, and she she threw a little bit of a surprise curveball at us. Let's take a look. Our nation is facing an unprecedented global crisis that highlights the inextricable bonds of humanity and how foreign policy and domestic policy are inseparable. We are all in this together, and we must all rise to meet this moment in service to our country and our fellow man. This is not the first time that we have faced adversity together, and it will not be the last. After the terrorist attack by Al-Qaeda on our country on 9-11, we stood together as Americans, motivated to serve, marshalling our forces to defeat our common enemy. I and so many Americans all across this country enlisted in the military to do just that. Likewise, today, as Americans and all of humanity, we face a common enemy. It is once again time as Americans and as neighbors in this global community, that we stand together once again and work hand in hand to defeat this new enemy, the coronavirus. Throughout my life and throughout this campaign, my motivation has been to serve God, our country, and the American people as best I can. I feel that the best way that I can be of service at this time is to continue to work for the health and well-being of the people of Hawaii and our country in Congress, and to stand ready to serve in uniform should the Hawaii National Guard be activated. Now, after Tuesday's election, it's clear that Democratic primary voters have chosen Vice President Joe Biden to be the person who will take on President Trump in the general election. I know Vice President Biden and his wife, and I'm grateful to have called his son, Bo, a friend, who also served in the National Guard. Although I may not agree with the Vice President on every issue, I know that he has a good heart, and he's motivated by his love for our country and the American people. I'm confident that he will lead our country, guided by the spirit of aloha, respect, and compassion, and thus help heal the divisiveness that has been tearing our country apart. So today, I'm suspending my presidential campaign and offering my full support to Vice President Joe Biden in his quest to bring our country together. I will continue to advocate for a 21st century foreign policy, one that's based on mutual respect and cooperation instead of confrontation, where we as a community of nations can work together to overcome the great challenges that our people face preventing and stopping pandemics like the coronavirus that is now affecting all of us, tackling climate change, combating terrorism, removing the existential threat of nuclear war that hangs over the heads of all of us. I will continue to do everything that I can to help bring about an end to the new Cold War and nuclear arms race and end regime change wars, which are costing us trillions of dollars so that we can invest these precious resources in the needs of the American people. Things like health care, rebuilding our infrastructure, 
education, and so much more. I want to extend my best wishes to my friends, Senator Bernie Sanders, his wife Jane, Nina Turner, and their many supporters for the work that they've done. I have such a great appreciation for Senator Sanders' love for our country and the American people and his sincere desire to improve the lives of all Americans. To the many people all across our country who've dedicated their time and energy and resources to my campaign, working tirelessly to help get our message out, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. I look forward to speaking to you more in the coming days about why I made this decision and how we can continue to work together for our common cause. There you have it. There you have it. Uh, Allow me to say this. I disagree. (laughs) I disagree. And uh, listen, at some point, Bernie's going to do the same thing, and I disagree with him too. I don't agree. I don't agree. We went through this in 2016. I'm not going through it again. I'm not partaking in it in any way, shape, or form. In 2016, what did I tell you guys? Yes, I'm in New York. It's a safe state. I'm not going to vote for Hillary. But if I lived in a swing state, I'd suck it up and do it. I'm not giving you any caveats this time. I'm telling you the truth. I wouldn't, in a safe state or a swing state, vote for Biden. I wouldn't do it. I can't do it anymore. I can't do it. I'm done vote, compromising away all of what I believe. See, that's the thing. And that's where people get it twisted. They think like, oh, you're being, you know, you're being a purity test, purity test person. Is that what you're being? And you won't vote for somebody who you agree with on a lot of... I do. I agree with him on a lot of stuff. Look at his record. How many times have I showed you guys this? He supported the Iraq war, NAFTA. By the way, Iraq war, Tulsi. Iraq war, Tulsi. Iraq war, Tulsi. Iraq war, Tulsi. I know your whole thing is anti-war. Iraq war, Tulsi. NAFTA, permanent normal trade relations with China, Patriot Act, TPP, repeal Glass-Steagall, war on drugs, Wall Street bailout, anti-gay defense and marriage act. He opposes legal weed, a wealth tax, Medicare for all, free college, canceling student debt. And you could add to that list ending the wars because he ain't going to end Dickie McGee's acts. You know it. I know it. You know it. I know it. So uh, I'm sorry, man. What do you want me to do in a situation where I know, as a matter of fact, he will fight for none of the things I care about? My dad is dead because we don't have Medicare for all. And he just said I would veto Medicare for all, even if it got to my desk and I didn't have to lift a finger. What am I supposed to do in that situation? I'm not voting for it. I'm not voting for it. It's not happening. And what I would say to Tulsi and what I would say to Bernie and what I would say to to anybody who's an anti-establishment maverick, be that. Be that. They don't like you. They're never going to like you. They're never going to, you know, play ball with you. They're never going to, you know, take you seriously. So... Rep that role. That's what I would do. Rep that role. Um, I already said earlier, and you guys could look at the segment, I proposed a deal. I proposed a deal for the Joe Biden types. Now, I'm convinced he wouldn't fight for any of the things I care about. And that's heartbreaking. And so I'm not going to vote. But what I did is I offered them an off-ramp. And I know I'm speaking for myself and many of you guys out there, although I don't know how many, to be fair. But 
if Joe Biden picks Bernie Sanders or Nina Turner as a VP, I'll vote for him. I'll vote for him. And even that might be too kind <laughs> of me to say. But, you know, I'm giving them an option. I'm giving them an out. They can't turn around and blame us, even though they will if he loses. But, hey, I'm doing my part. I'm doing everything I can. I don't think it's possible to drag him left. Now, whatever he would say he's going to do that's left, he's not going to do. I know he's not going to do it because I see his record. I see his record. So the, op- the out is, okay, pick Bernie Sanders or Nina Turner for VP, and then you'll get my vote. If not, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. So for Tulsi, she said, oh, I'm going to go to the, I'm going to the um, convention no matter what. And now she says, nope, not going to the convention. I'll drop out and endorse Biden. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, there you have it. I think we need to get a lot more loud a lot more aggressive, take a lot less shit, and be a lot more organized. And when I say that, I mean the people who actually agree with us and what we're trying to do. Medicare for all, free college, living wage, end the wars, um, legalize marijuana, Green New Deal, raise taxes on the rich, raise taxes on Wall Street. For the people who actually care about these issues and believe in these issues, I think we need to be a hell of a lot more organized, a hell of a lot more aggressive, and uh, throw around our weight quite a bit more. So I agree with Lawrence O'Donnell when he said it back in probably the early 2000s. If you pledge, if you pledge them your vote, they ain't going to listen to you no matter what. So you know what? I'm not doing that. How about you? All right, I lied. One more. One more story. One more story. Kenneth Copeland is a multimillionaire televangelist, and um, he's telling his viewers, even in the wake of a pandemic and an economic crash, hey, if you lose your job, don't stop giving stuff to me. Fear of this, this coronavirus is, is faith in its ability to hurt your kidneys. Uh, the, the, the fear of what are we going to do? I'm getting laid off at work. Hey, your job's not your source. If it is, you're in trouble. Jesus is your source. Whatever you do right now, don't you stop tithing. Oh. Don't you stop sowing offerings. Well, they won't let us go to church. Well, email it in there, text and give or something, but you get your tithe in that church. If you have to go take it down there and drop it off and unstick it under the door or something, you get that tithe in that church, you get that offering in that church, and then you go home and you do what we're supposed to do. Tithing means donating to the church, giving money to the church. These guys are evil, man. These guys are evil. You know, I've heard left-wing commentators, and I try to do this myself, too. You guys rarely hear me bring it up. But I've heard other left-wing commentators go, hey, man, you know, this show runs on tips. So if you want to go to Patreon and donate a couple bucks a month, I'd really appreciate it. But if you're in a difficult place financially, it's okay. I don't want anything from you. 
Enjoy the show. I've heard that from multiple left-wing commentators. It's my belief, too. I, hard, I hardly ever bring up my Patreon, and that's, you know, the most important funding of this show. But that's what you do if you're a decent person. Say, hey, man, listen, if you guys are in a tough situation, no, no, no. You need your money. I get it. You got to pay the bills. You got to keep the lights on. You got to pay the rent. I get it. I, any reasonable person gets it. It's tough times out there, and it's going to get even tougher. We're talking about 20% unemployment or more. The stock market's crashing. People are getting laid off left and right. We have a freaking pandemic. The economy's freezing up. In a situation like that, if you really cared about people, if you really wanted to help them, the first thing you do is be like, oh, man, keep your money. And furthermore, this guy's supposed to be a man of God. How can I help? What can I do for you? What can I do? Can I open up, you know, maybe some of, some of my different properties or different churches? Can I open them up for homeless people if they're outside in the streets and they're afraid of getting the coronavirus? How can I help? But this prosperity gospel, which is what this guy believes and many others believe in today's day and age, to them it's me, 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 me. This guy's a televangelist. When he says, you better keep tithing, what he's saying is, you better keep giving me money. You better keep giving me money. I don't care you lost your job, pandemic, yeah, whatever, loud noises, don't care. I care about you giving me stuff. So do it. If you close your eyes, he sounds just like Jesus, doesn't he? I believe that's what Jesus said. <laughs> and thou shalt give unto me until thou, thou has nothing left. These are bad dudes, man. These are, so, so far, if you're keeping track, we got this televangelist saying, gimme, gimme, gimme. I don't care if you lose your job. Gimme, gimme, gimme. And then you got the other one, um, Jim Baker, who has a show, big religious guy. He's selling fake cures for the coronavirus, some silver potion. He's acting like it's a cure to the point where the authorities are telling him, you better stop selling it or you're going to be sued. You might go to prison for doing this. That's fraud, what he's doing. Alex Jones is doing it too, conspiracy theorist. He's acting like his toothpaste and stuff and supplements cures coronavirus. These people, man. Look at how low this is. By the way, this guy went, uh, was famous recently, or he, you know, story went viral recently when he was begging his audience for donations so he can get a private plane. Because he said, I can't fly in the commercial air, airliners because I don't want to be in a tube with a bunch of demons. These so-called demons are the people who you're begging for money from, regular people. Give me money. I'm a man of God. I'm a man of Jesus. Now give me money for a private plane because I hate people that are demons. And also, you better even if you lose your job, you better give money. And, and by the way, the dirty trick they do is they always say like, oh, if you give to God, then God gives back to you more. And, I'm, and we're God. The church is God. We represent God. So give us, give us, give us. Such a dirty trick. It's been happening, you know, it's a story as old as time, as old as humans. Peter Popoff is another great example. Had those late night commercials, those late night, you know, infomercial shows where he try he sells holy water and says it'll cure your cancer, it'll cure your debt. Give me money, it'll cure your debt. Oh my god, what is wrong with you? Give me money, it'll cure your debt. <laughs> Cut to, you know, one of those memes of the person doing the math and the freaking equations are over their head. Like this is out of this world. These guys are evil, dude. They're evil. Selfish, piggy, evil, totally unable to sympathize with other people. And this is, 
And this is a guy who claims to, I'm, I represent Jesus. Yes. Do you really? Because Jesus strikes me as a hippie commie before hippies and communism were a thing. And you're basically the polar opposite of that. Nobody should take these guys seriously. If you're struggling financially, you keep your money. You keep your money. And any reasonable person is going to understand. All right, guys, we are done. I love you, baby. Everybody stay safe. Keep social distancing. Um, I love you, and I'll talk to you soon. Peace.